Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Lily Sulemanovich. Lily is telling us about being a 15-year-old girl in Bosnia when the Yugoslavian war breaks out and she and her family are forced to flee from Sarajevo to the UK. It's a remarkable story. We have so much to talk about and we have a really interesting conversation afterward. But first, I want to share this incredible story with you recorded live at 21 Soho. My childhood in Sarajevo, though probably not familiar to most of you here, was a pretty ordinary and a happy one. And yes, I had been the proud president of Pioneer Association, a communist youth organization that all school pupils had to join. And yes, the most competitive event of my school calendar was the annual competition titled Following in Tito's Revolutionary Footsteps. Um, but um, I did also grow up to the beat of MTV, alternating my, uh, in my affections between Bross and New Kids on the Block. Um, and my most prized possession when I was 15 were my pair of original Levi's 501s, which my mum had bought for me and paid for in three installments in the one shop in the city that was the authorised distributor for this ultimate fashion symbol of the West. I had remained pretty oblivious to the early signs that something was rotten in my idyllic homeland of Yugoslavia. The rationing of bread experienced more as a nuisance of having to wait for a long time in the queue daily, uh, waiting for the bread delivery, or hyperinflation as an opportunity to collect consecutive series of notes with expanding numbers of zeros on them. Even as our neighboring Croatia was engulfed in a brutal war, the threat to our own existence in Bosnia seemed distant until it wasn't. Uh, in March 1992, uh, Bosnia had voted for independence in a referendum, and the following month, uh, the Yugoslav National Army had surrounded the city with tanks pointing at us from the Olympic mountains of Sarajevo. Uh, school was suspended and barricades erected around the city. A military airplane flew so low above the buildings that it broke the sound barrier and shattered windows across the city. And we lived close to the airport, and I remember seeing the plane, uh, the wheels of this plane, as it flew right above our house uh, before my mum threw herself over me, screaming in fright. We were very, very lucky that my parents decided we would leave the country until things settled down a bit. It's for two weeks only, promised my dad, as he packed off my mum with me and my brother, my three cousins who were the, the children of his siblings, and his mother, my elderly grandmother, on what turned out to be one of the last commercial flights out of Sarajevo. This was in April 1992, and it would be the last time that my cousins would see their parents until the end of the war in 1995. So the first refuge we found was uh, a modest home of distant relatives in Macedonia, whom we had never met before. A few days after we arrived, we watched horrific sights on television and lost all contact with our family. Sarajevo, the Jerusalem of Europe, came under a, a siege that would last 1,425 days, the longest siege in modern history. The city was under indiscriminate and constant shelling and sniper fire, Electricity and phone lines were cut. Um, food supplies blocked. During the war in Sarajevo, 14,000 people died, civilians. 
1,600 of them were children, including uh, my school friends and relatives. Children that were no different than us and were no more likely to be killed than we would have been if we had stayed. My own father was wounded by a sniper that first summer of war, although we weren't to know this until some time later. So days rolled by like this, and you know, three months went by, and we were still in Macedonia. And my poor mother was desperate to leave. I mean, this was the country that was itself on the verge of conflict. But leaving was no easy feat. We had no passports, because when we traveled, we traveled within our own country, and that no longer existed. And we had no money, because my dad promised that this was a two-week trip only. So there is absolutely no doubt that we would have been stuck in Macedonia for much longer had my wonderful mother not somehow found out about this unique international organization in Skopje in Macedonia called the First Children's Embassy in the world, uh, an organization set up to protect the rights of children. So she approached them and from them she magicked uh, an internationally accepted travel document that was valid for 10 days. It was literally just a piece of paper with our pictures on them. Uh, and this allowed us to board a coach that was headed for Croatia. We had no idea what fate would await in Croatia, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that neat rows of military tents housing more than 3,000 refugees from Bosnia and Herzegovina did not feature in any permutation of possible options. Um, and yet there we were. Don't worry, my mother said the night we arrived. We'll just stay overnight and I'll figure something else out. But the truth is that just like the 3,000 other people in that camp, we had nowhere else to go. The camp itself was located on the most northerly tip of the Istrian coast, and a part of it had retained its original use. So just meters away from where we were, the Italian tourists were sunbathing in their speedos and bikinis, but life for, for us was as far away from that as possible. Now, there is very little redeeming to be said about life in a refugee camp. More than 3,000 people crammed in unsanitary conditions, sleeping 15 to 20 in a tent with no privacy, being fed unrecognizable food, um, both in taste and origin, no access to doctors or any other infrastructure. But as the war in Bosnia raged on, it became increasingly obvious there was nowhere for us to be returning anytime soon. And as the winter approached, or as the end of summer approached, bringing with it more frequent storms, we became increasingly worried about our future in the camp. So this fateful night, the wind was howling outside and our tent was completely flooded. So me and my brother and my cousins were sitting on these makeshift beds that we would be sleeping on, uh, our feet up and our bellies rumbling because my mum had been away to get our dinner and you know, she wasn't coming back for a long time. And then she walked in and she was looking very pale and her face was covered uh, in rain. And she sat down and said, Lily, would you like to go to England? And now that was a thunderbolt that I did not expect this evening. What had happened is that a motley crew had arrived from England into our camp with nothing less than an empty coach. This was a group of six men, strangers to each other, uh, united on a mission to rescue refugees. And they had traveled from Bedfordshire for two days, arriving in Croatia via Slovenia. And, and once, get, once they got there, they asked to be directed to a refugee camp. Our camp happened to be one of the biggest ones on the Croatian coast uh, at that time and probably the closest one to the border with Slovenia. So as they say, location, location, location. Um, it, was, it was incredibly lucky that they stumbled upon, uh, upon us. Now, my mum's unenviable position of being the sole carer of five children and an elderly grandmother earned her a priority spot on this uh, rescue coach. 
And the very next day, 32 of us packed up our meager possessions and boarded this coach, despite the fact we had absolutely no idea where we were going. But one thing we did know, it couldn't be any worse than a flooded tent. So we got on the bus and headed for the border with Slovenia. And there we run into the old passport issue again, because none of us had any. So we got turned away from um, from one border crossing. We tried another one, turned away, tried another one, turned away again. Uh, and so the rescue, the organizers said, I, I think we should just go back to the camp and try again in the morning. And I was one of two people on that coach who could speak a little bit of English. So I translated this to the rest of the group. And there was absolute mutiny. They were like, nope, we're going to sleep on the coach if necessary, but we're not going back to that camp. So I translated this back. Um, and then another stroke of luck for us at the port, we found an Italian ship captain who was happy to let us stow away um, on his on his ferry, providing we did not draw attention to ourselves because obviously he didn't want to get into trouble. So of course, um, that's what we did. And, and I really remember vividly the heavy silence on the short trip, short crossing into Italy, all of us really afraid to make a sound uh, lest we should risk our chances and, and be forced to go back to the camp. Uh, but we made it. Uh, and our first few months in England were eventful. First, we found ourselves living with Darren, who was this vivacious leader of our rescue group. And then all of a sudden, we were visiting Darren in prison, uh, having discovered that uh, he had organized this rescue mission uh, while awaiting trial for a crime he committed. <laughs> so, it's a true story. Um, and then there were first family reunions, us with my father, who uh, was nursing an unhealed sniper wound on his foot, and our friends with brothers and husbands who were freed from concentration camps in Western Bosnia. And so amidst all this destruction, we set about rebuilding our lives. Decision number one, leave Luton and move to London. Now, I don't know if anyone here is from Luton, and no offense, but I don't think that needs explaining. Um, <laughs> Decision number two, find a good school. Now, my parents may have been new to the West, but they sussed out the inequities of the British state education system pretty quickly. So we moved to London, and then just a few weeks after, serendipitously, uh, my parents received a call from the Bosnian embassy. A, a fantastic school, for ladies no less, was offering a full scholarship to a suitable girl, and Lily was the right person. She must go, they said. You must go, my parents said. Um, I interviewed and I was offered this place, but I was really reluctant to go. This was a boarding school and I did not want to separate from my family. Now, my mum was similarly distraught, but my father, always the more rigid one, he was adamant. I was destined for a life of hard labor if I didn't go. And so no sooner than I had set my foot in London, I was shipped off to Cheltenham. And I won't lie to you. It was an immense cultural shock to go from a communist utopia via a refugee camp to the seat of British class-based elitism. But how lucky was I? Um, the school was nothing but a warm and nurturing environment that allowed me to develop many more identities in addition to my identity as the refugee from Bosnia. It gave me confidence and a voice to express my opinions even if I did have to learn that omitting definite and indefinite articles, something that us Slavic speakers are very fond of, was apparently very funny, no matter how serious the subject of conversation. I still haven't quite mastered that, but I try. <laughs> Going to Cheltenham Ladies College opened up opportunities for me that I would not have dared to dream of otherwise. From there, I went off to Oxford University for my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, 
I entered the world of management consulting, followed by an MBA from Harvard Business School. Now, this is what a well, well-integrated refugee looks like. Um, but uh, as integrated as I was in my heart, I was still just that refugee, ripped up from my home and my friends. And I sought out very hard to keep my connections to Bosnia alive. And then four years ago, needing a new sense of purpose in my life, I took a big leap into the unknown and set up a manufacturing business in Bosnia with my cousin. And this is how Bardo Good Mood Food was born. Um, they're uh, naturally nutritious, unprocessed snacks based on just dried fruits, nuts, and botanical ingredients inspired by a long tradition of plant-based healing uh, in Bosnia. We have a small artisanal facility in, in my home city of Sarajevo where we make these uh, snacks and we're trying to showcase how business can be a force for good. We make really healthy snacks that are good for the mind, good for the body, uh, and we provide good employment opportunities with a special focus on supporting women. I also recently co-founded the first British Bosnian and Herzegovinian Chamber of Commerce. That's a long name. Um, and I'm hoping that I can use my, uh, my role there to promote uh, greater investment and trade between the UK and Bosnia. And, and really, I, and I feel that I'm now at that stage in my life where I would like to use my good fortune to create opportunities for others. And if you think that that was not enough luck in one story, I'd just like to end by saying that I also feel very lucky to be here tonight and to be able to share my story with you, perhaps just offering you a, a different perspective when you see some refugees on television today. You know, they, it may not all be what, what you see at first. Thank you very much. Lily, welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to see you. Thank you, Michelle. It's a real pleasure to be here. So how does it sound to you hearing your story back after so much time has passed? It was a little bit unusual to hear that story replayed, kind of almost hearing it as, you know, as a third person speaking. Some of the aspects of it, when you put them together, can almost sound unbelievable, you know, even to me, having experienced it all and written the story. So yeah, it was the, the first time for me to actually hear myself talk about it. It is a little unbelievable what went on during those years. It's sort of startling. How do you decide when to share this part of your life story with someone that you're meeting? I'm very proud of my identity as a Bosnian. So, you know, that Bosnian identity is something that is very proudly there from the moment that people meet me. However, kind of the background story, uh, especially the details of how we came to the UK, are something that I very, very rarely talk about. And so I think within my circle of friends, obviously my close friends um, and family know the story, but I don't really share it uh, very often. And is that because it's traumatic or is it because it doesn't come up in casual conversation that you're a refugee and went through such difficult experiences? I think there's probably an aspect of all survivors of something very traumatic probably don't want to talk about it very often because there is a certain element of emotional travel back in time whenever you do talk about it. So you probably avoid it for those reasons. 
to protect yourself. And- yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes also because your identity, you know, that you've had for the past 30 years and, you know, especially being very settled in the UK and feeling very British as well, it doesn't come up necessarily. You know, there are so many other things that you end up talking to people about or about yourself that somehow this aspect never really gets covered in full detail. And also, I wonder if you can trust how people will react Absolutely. And I think the world that we are living in now is very different from the world when I first came to the UK. We were the first refugees in Europe uh, since the Second World War. So when we came to the UK, we found everyone was very welcoming to us. You know, we did not feel this sense of stigma necessarily about what had happened to us. You know, we were just the victims of a conflict. And it seemed quite natural that people would want to escape that conflict. In this context, you know, talking about being a refugee, you do probably expect that people would have a much more loaded notion of what that means about you versus, you know, even 20, 20 years ago. Sure. Uh, I would probably do not bring it up because it seems easier to not face that uh, you know, prejudice or even not to have that discussion, which might not end up being the most positive one. Right. And well, that's among the many reasons why I was so happy to have you share your story is you are through your personal experience, letting so many people update what it's actually like when you're, I mean, you didn't want to leave your idyllic homeland. This wasn't a choice. This was about life and death. When did you first go back to Bosnia after the war and after you'd settled here? I mean, I went as soon as I could, uh, sooner than I was strictly speaking allowed to go. I went back in the winter of 96. So the war was officially ended in February 1996. And that very winter, so the winter of 96 and the New Year's Eve 97, I was in Sarajevo. You know, it was a very (laughs) difficult journey. I had to travel to Italy and then take a ferry to split and then get on a coach. And, uh, you know, most of the bridges were destroyed in the fighting. And there were these makeshift bridges that were kind of put in place. And the coach would basically cross these makeshift bridges. Oh, my gosh. And pretty much everywhere you went were signs of destruction. The, the extreme shelling that the city had endured during the four years of siege meant that there wasn't a single piece of glass in the city that wasn't shattered. And what people had done is that they had taped sort of plastic uh, sheets to the windows just to stop the cold from coming in. And so that first winter, literally every, you know, every window in our house or in my friend's houses was still these uh, uh, sheets of plastic rather than glass. There was no street lighting. Um, There was still water rationing. We had buckets in the bathrooms and from where you would, you know, still try and wash your hair and, and, you know, do a little do. So I did get to see the city, you know, at the end of the war in, in its absolute utter destruction and not just the city, but also the rest of the country. It must have been so difficult. I mean, it was, but it was also very important for me to be there. And I think this is something that most survivors kind of have to contend with, that you also feel guilty that you haven't lived through the things that your family or friends have lived through. 
so being able to be there as soon as possible, being able to to see and experience the country and the city at the height of its destruction was very important to me. So mm. I, I sought to go there as, as often as I could, especially, you know, as I age, I'm really grateful that I did go immediately and that I do have kind of that physical, personal experience of where we have come from. I'm curious about the culture shock of going from your communist utopia in this beautiful jewel of a city and the journey you went through was so harrowing and landing in Luton, making your way to London and ultimately to this elite college. It must've been so much for a teenage brain to take in. <laughs> yes. I mean, we growing up in Yugoslavia had more freedom and access to information than was the case for the countries that were under the so-called Iron Curtain. So I had grown up with satellite TV, you know, watching MTV. That's essentially how I learned English, trying to understand the lyrics of the different boy bands that I was <laughs> into at the time. It, it wasn't like the, the, the West, so-called, was unfamiliar to us. But we had imagined it, that it somehow had more things. You know, we knew that there was more choice, more consumerism. You know, we imagined that people were wealthier, that they had more things. So when we came to the UK, we went to live uh, on a, a road just on Marsh Farm, which is one of the most socially deprived estates in the UK. And I remember very, very vividly walking to the shopping center in the middle of this estate. And so, you know, this was September. It was still quite light and it was probably 6.30. And we had walked to this shopping mall and we came there and it was basically all the shutters were down. All the shops had closed at five o'clock. So it was completely deserted. And there was something so apocalyptic, something so weird about this lack of people. And it all looked really shabby and not how you expect England to look. Right. Because there are different Englands. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that was one really big shock to us was coming face to face with that socio-economically deprived part of the UK that just did not sit well with how we imagined life in the West would be. And I think if you talk to lots of Bosnians, a lot of them would say the same thing, that they just did not expect to see poverty, mm. did not expect to see you know things being less than we had experienced. Uh, but of course, that was the case. Right, um, right. And Lily, just thinking about the experience that you and your family had, your father stayed behind. Is this because you thought it was only a two-week temporary move and you thought you'd be reunited after those couple of weeks? Two reasons. One, we did think it was very temporary. And the decision for my mom to take the children of my dad's siblings were in themselves only made because we thought it was temporary. I don't think the parents would have separated from the children or, you know, perhaps they would have left as well had they known. And then the second was obviously that men of, you know, above 18 were not allowed to leave. Everyone was conscripted into the territorial defense of the country. So my father wouldn't have been able to leave. And your father was trying to literally hold down the fort. Can you tell a little bit about his story? It's quite interesting. Yes. Yeah, so the economy was liberalizing in 1990 and 91. So he registered a company, just a kind of general trading company, and took on a little space in, uh, in this part of town where we were living. And when the war started, that little shop was converted to an aid distribution point. 
And so one of these days, they were all in the shop and they had just finished this sort of distribution of aid. They were sitting in the back office and from Trebevich, from one of the mountains nearby, uh, a sniper had shot from an anti-aircraft machine gun. So it's a very big bullet. And it went through my dad's foot and oh. also through the leg, through the calf of a neighbor of ours. So two of them were injured with the same bullet. Oh my goodness. Um, and uh, yeah, he was taken to, again, a makeshift hospital. Our part of town was very close to the airport and was itself under a, a siege from the rest of the city. So this part of town was disconnected from the rest of the city. And so the hospital was a makeshift hospital. They had no anesthetic. They, you know, it was made in a dentist office or, you know, like a, a, a you know, local ambulance. So my father was there for a few days for this injury that he had. He was very lucky not to have lost his foot because the bullet went just a few millimeters under the, the bones of the of the foot. But during that time, you can just imagine, it was very traumatic oh. what he would have seen, the injuries of people that were coming in and, and pretty much people were having their body parts amputated without anesthetic. Oh That's literally what, what incredible conditions people were working in. Dad was wounded uh, very early on. So he was wounded in the summer of uh, 1992 and he his wound would not heal. He just kept getting infections and infections. And so for about five, six months, he was still in Sarajevo, unable to walk having to be carried to the shelter and when his foot got a little bit better but it was still pretty much a sore infected site um, I think he decided that he had to try and get out of the the city because he was a sitting duck and a burden to everyone around him so he decided to try and escape and the only way to do this was to try and run across the airfield to the other side where the Bosnian army was in control of the mountain that was on that side and so from there you could be taken in through the free territory into Croatia. So we didn't know that he was doing this. Obviously, we had very limited contact, but he tried many times to run across the field, but would always be captured by the UN. They had taken over the control of the airport and they were stopping people from getting in or out. In essence, when people would try and escape, the UN would catch you and take you back to the oh city. They would literally not allow you to cross. So yeah, he kept getting caught until one morning he actually managed to escape, covering himself because it was in the winter and there was a lot of snow, covering himself with a white sheet to try and avoid not, the snipers well, and, avoid and the, the UN, snipers and the UN and the at UN. the same time. Yeah. So he managed to escape with an injured foot by covering himself in a white sheet and crossing across an open expanse of airfield that was snow covered. Yes. Yes. And then when he got to the other side, obviously his foot had burst open again oh. as they crossed. So he then ended up spending a few days in the hospital on the other side in this little town called Hrasnica, which was on the other side of the airfield. And then from there, he got a, a lift and went into Croatia. <laughs> and then the poor man, he tried to get a train from Croatia to London and ended up having his coat stolen on the train. And I have a picture with him of the evening when he arrived. He was wearing a jumper with a stick and then had this winter coat which someone had stolen oh. on the train as he was asleep. <laughs> so this was the uh, the night of his arrival oh. in the UK. Yeah. So Lily, your mother in this story is such a pivotal person to you and to just your entire family making this trek. Can you talk a little bit about her and what she was like? 
course, I mean, she was, she was a very special person. She was always immensely practical, always looked for solutions, always tried to make things better, never thought of herself as a victim, never wanted to be the victim, and never really encouraged that narrative of not having agency or being at the mercy of events or other people. And that I'm really grateful to her for having gifted me that sense of possibility and, and always thinking of life as a space where a lot of the time you have agency, of course, not always. But when we were in the camp, I, I can't imagine the despair that she felt because she must have felt despair. But she kept saying to me, don't worry, you know, we'll sort something out. I guess because I was 15 at the time and that question of how I continue my education was really prominent for her. This was a subject of conversations a lot of the time between us. And she just kept saying, you know, don't worry, I'm, you know, I'm going to sort something out. You will go to school in Zagreb. I mean, I don't know what she was thinking, but she was very reassuring to me saying, don't worry, you will go to school. You know, you will not stay in the camp. And then, of course, this incredible event happened. You know, these people arriving in our camp and giving us this opportunity to to go to the UK. My mum, wonderful as she was, presented it as a choice to me. You know, I remember that <laughs> night, which of course it wasn't a choice. She was like, you know, if you want to go, we'll go. But if you don't want to go, then we'll think of something. I mean, I was sure she, she knew that I wasn't going to say, let's not go to England. But yes, and then, you know, she couldn't speak a word of English. But very soon she was going to night school. She was, you know, keeping copious notes on grammar. And, you know, we used to talk about this together. And every time she would learn something, she would go and write it down and want to practice it. And very soon she was completely independent. She was just not afraid to speak, not afraid to make mistakes, which isn't always the case for people. You know, she was in her forties when she came. Right. It's like imagining myself now having to move to a country where I don't speak a word of their language and they don't speak my how would you get on? But she just did. And so she was really a very, very incredible person. And then you mentioned the coach and Darren and this serendipitous occasion of he and his crew deciding to rent a coach and come to Croatia to pick up refugees. Yes. I mean, the details that we were able to understand after the event, probably not the full picture, but the people were brought together by him and they really didn't have anything in common with each other. So they were not, it's not like a, uh, an association or a church group had organized something. Well, Darren's uh, motivation was that he was awaiting trial. Is that right? So that's what we think, that he was, you know, obviously wanted to help, obviously was moved by the plight of the refugees obviously also was facing this very important event in his life, awaiting trial for a crime that he was accused of, and perhaps thought that that could help present a different picture of himself or, you know, to the to the judge or to the court. And so whatever his motivations were, we, we, we weren't picky. And of course, we didn't know at the time. The intention to help was there. I think that's what united them. Well, Lily, as we've talked about this part of your story, you have been 100% consistent in feeling gratitude and protection for this person to say, there may have been circumstances that led to him deciding to make this trek. But at the end of the day, he did something. He organized a group of people, brought them to Croatia by rented coach and picked up 32 refugees and got you to safety. All of them together did an incredible deed for the people who they rescued and who have been able to rebuild better lives for themselves here as a result of their actions. So I think all of us feel an immense gratitude to them 
for what they did. I mean, that camp that we were in was operational for the entire length of war. They actually ended up building makeshift houses and even setting up a school there. So there were people who lived there for the entire length of the war. So who knows, you know, maybe that would have been us. Maybe we would have moved it. It's very hard to know what my mum's options would have been, right? Uh, especially with, with five kids. But no one spoke English. I spoke enough to have a conversation, but I was a child. And so we were not in a position to question anything that he did. We sort of just did what we were told to do. The first few days we stayed, he took us into his flat, which was kind of downtown Luton. And then he said he was going to find us a, a house for us to live. So within a short few days, he said he's found us a house. And so we went to this house that was on the Marsh Farm estate. But then he moved in with us, like he came and lived there. And so we were didn't know how to ask him, like, why was he there? You know, like, why was he? He had a dog as well, you know, so him and his dog were there. A few weeks later, I remembered one of the other guys from the group coming up and sort of asking me to step outside to, you know, to tell me something. And then he said, you know, Darren is in prison, but he couldn't tell us why. He didn't tell us anything much about what had happened. He just said that, unfortunately, he's in prison. And so a few days later, a group of us, remember very vividly, that we traveled to <laughs> prison to visit him there. I mean, it's, it's just quite incredible. So yes, there were some, you know, comical oh elements of our story. The gist of your experience with Darren is gratitude. And of course it was. And he was impacted emotionally with what he saw and the experiences of people that he helped to arrive here. So he still sought to have contact and, you know, somehow offer some help. I love your moment in your story where you catch us up on what your path has been, Lily. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me and not at all surprising that you were demonstrating leadership qualities in the Pioneer Youth Organization. And that that I think has carried you through in your academic and your business career. And now started a business in Bosnia in order to, I think, some combination of give something back, but also bring something of Bosnia to your new home. Yes, um Keeping my links to Bosnia alive was something that was always very important to me. I think that's partly a function of the age at which I left. At 15, you were in the middle of your very important formative years, but you're, unlike my brother and my cousins, he was sort of 10 or, or younger, you already have friends, you already have a sense of your own personal identity, your links with the music, the people with the culture, you know, you have the identity of yourself as being rooted in this place. And so being taken and forcibly taken out of that environment is quite hard. And so you're constantly seeking to make up for the things that you've lost, you know, for the childhood that you've lost, for the experiences that you've lost. And so as soon as it was possible for me to go back, I was going back every year at every opportunity. Later on, when I had a professional career, I sought opportunities to do something professionally in Bosnia. And then there came a point when, for personal reasons, I felt a need for a change of direction, something, something different in my life. And this idea came about to build a small manufacturing facility and to launch a brand of healthy snacks. We 
created this brand and grew it to national distribution in Bosnia. And then we're now launching it in the UK. It's a, it's a really brilliant product that I think has potential to grow and become a Bosnian brand that has a home in the UK and perhaps the rest of Europe. So it's Bardo, B-A-R-D-O. Yes, yes. The name of the brand is Bardo. It comes from the Bosnian word Dobar. Uh, so it's a play on words and Dobr means good, and not just in Bosnian, but in many Slavic languages. So you can find us at uh, bardo.uk. Lily, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's really extraordinary, but I also think a testament to who you are as a person. I feel so grateful for the chance to get to know you better. So I'm really appreciative of you sharing and also just being here and talking more about it all. Thank you, Michelle, for giving me this opportunity to tell you my story and, and for your interest in it. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon. 